If you would, take your Bibles with me, please, and open them to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. If you had your finger Bible marked in Luke, I commend you, but we will not be there today. As I said earlier this morning, we're going to continue the theme of what our little ones learned at VBS. We're going to approach it in a little bit of a different format, but nonetheless, the truths we consider today were the truths we were trying to teach yesterday. We'll be in John chapter 1, and we're going to ask ourselves the most important question that has ever been asked or ever could be asked, and that question is, who is Jesus? That question has been asked a lot, and many different answers have been given, In fact, even in the church, some are confused about the answer to that question. But nonetheless, it's important for us to ask it. Who is Jesus Christ? A man that has so influenced history, even to today, present time, we need to know as much as we can about this man. As unbelievers, when that question needs to be asked, and we need to ask that question so that they might hear and consider and come to faith once their eyes have been enlightened and their hearts have been enlightened. But even for believers, we want to continue to ask this question that we may continue to behold the wonder of our Lord and clearly grasp the wonder of the Gospel and that we may increase in adoration for Jesus. This is a question that... We've always had to ask, but we need to continue to ask ourselves and remind ourselves of the answer of who our Lord is and who He claims to be. Because this truth, like we sang, does thrill our hearts when we consider who Christ is and that He would save us and care for us at all. Now Jesus asked this very question in a unique way. He asked it of Himself in Matthew chapter 16. If you're familiar with that passage, You know that in verse 13, he looks to his disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? He's been in ministry, public ministry for some time at that point. Crowds have been following him. Religious leaders have taken notice of him. And it's in the midst of uh, crowds and interactions that he looks to his 12 and and a few more that have followed him. And he said, what's the popular opinion about me? What does the world think about me? We know that they get that question wrong. But what's intriguing about Matthew 16 is a few verses later in verse 15, Jesus goes from this broad general look at who do people say that I am and then He looks specifically at His disciples and He says with uh, divine power even as we read it today, but who do you say that I am? And that's the crux of the question, right? We can come at a technical sense and an intellectual sense and ask who is Jesus and we can begin to evaluate historical context and extra canonical writings and those kinds of things. But really, Jesus asked the question as it should be asked, who do you say that I am? Because the question, who is Jesus, is always, always a personal question. People can tell you what the answer is. You can hear from the radio or from the internet or from TV what the answer is, but the question is a personal question that you have to answer. Who is Jesus to you? And that question can never be ignored. It must always be answered by every individual. 
even if you claim to not have an answer, that is itself in an answer, uh, itself an answer, and in the end, everyone will have the correct answer, won't they? The question must always be answered by everyone, and it must be answered personally. Well, as I said, over the years, this question has been asked constantly and evaluated, and many answers have been given. Many religions have formed concerning the answer to this question, just who is Jesus? We see some people and some religious organizations define Him as simply a prophet. Nothing more than that. He was one of many prophets in a long line of prophets of God and, and uh, perhaps even the greatest prophet, as Islam would claim, but nonetheless just a prophet. Some, even in our culture, it doesn't take uh, too much time to find somebody who would answer this way. Some would claim that Jesus was just simply a good person or a good teacher. He espoused to good morals and good principles and wanted a good society and, and just His overall goodness is what people enjoyed about Him and what attracted them to Him much like um, Gandhi or Mother Teresa or somebody of that sort today. Others would claim that Jesus was just crazy, a crazy fanatic. Maybe He belonged in the camp of the zealots though He wouldn't identify with them, but he was just wanting to cause an uprising in the world. Others espouse this gospel that Jesus is nothing more than a self-help tool, a self-improvement kind of character only to make your life better or make you a better you. The Jews of Jesus' time called Him a blasphemer. He was blaspheming and lying about God. Others have called Him a thief, stealing the people away from God. Others have called Him a liar. Others have called Him a social outcast trying to gain popularity in the world. Even in that Matthew 16 passage, we see different answers given, right? Some uh, say John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. Some say he's Jeremiah. Still some others say he's just another prophet from of old Herod even. In his time, thought he might be John the Baptist reincarnate. All of those questions are indeed wrong, aren't they? But also in Matthew 16, we see a glorious truth proclaimed. We see Peter gets the answer right, doesn't he? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter looks at him with confidence and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That statement by Peter is a loaded statement. Christ is the Greek equivalent to Messiah, which means Peter is saying, you're the anointed one. The the promised one. The one who comes from the line of David. You're the one we've been waiting for. Jesus says, you're right, Peter, that's it. That is the answer, and that can only be revealed to you by God. The same is still true for us today, right? This question has to be asked, but the truth of it can only be revealed to us by God. Our hearts can only be awakened by the Father to see the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And for those of us who have had our hearts awakened and regenerated by the Father, by His grace and His mercy towards us, we can look into the pages of Scripture and see who Jesus Christ is, right? This living and active Word defining who our Savior actually is. And that's what we come to find in John chapter 1 because anytime you consider who the person of Jesus is, you have to look at John chapter 1. You you can't disagree with me on that. You have to look at John chapter 1. It's so foundational. In fact, there are really... 
four Christological passages that we identify in the New Testament. I mean, we would say all of Scripture culminates in Jesus Christ and all of the New Testament points to Jesus Christ. But there are four passages that define His person. It would be Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, all of which we're going to look at today. And then John chapter 1. And in my estimation, John chapter 1 might be the most important, most clear, most complete picture of Jesus. It's strange to say that because Colossians 1 is so full of Paul continuing on with praise concerning the person of Christ, but John takes just a few verses at the beginning of his Gospel and hammers deep a profound reality of who Jesus Christ actually is. What we come to find and consider in John chapter 1, verse 1, church, it is central and foundational for our faith eternally significant for us. Before we go there, I want to turn your attention to John chapter 20. We might be flipping a lot of pages today of Scripture. So I hope your fingers are nimble and ready. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John writes the purpose of his book. Now, we know the Gospel of John is unique from any other Gospel in the New Testament. In fact, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels because they uh, reference and, and, and go together so well. They repeat often the same narratives in their own style. John, on the other hand, is mostly unique. Only a handful of the passages in John can be found in any other passages. And it's because of what John says in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He's got a very specific mission. In verse 30, he says, Jesus did... Many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So that tells us John is being very particular, isn't he? Very specific. He's cutting some things out and including other things for a singular purpose. And this is that singular purpose in verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The other Gospels set out to give a, a pretty complete narrative picture of the life of Jesus culminating in the crucifixion. John sets out to define the person of Jesus. So the whole Gospel of John is foundational to understanding who Christ actually is. And in verse 1 of John chapter 1, he starts off with that very intention. In fact, John chapter 1, verse 1-18 through 18 is called the prologue of John's Gospel. He spends the rest of the Gospel fleshing out the truths that are highlighted in verse 1-18. through 18. All the major themes of John, the Gospel of John, are found in these 18 verses. They just get fleshed out. Except verse 1, the entirety of the rest of the Gospel fleshes out the truth of verse 1 and verse 2. It's because it's so central. It's so foundational. It's the cornerstone of which the Gospel of John is built upon. He says, I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ and so that's where I'm going to start my Gospel. My account. What I know of Jesus. This man who's walked with Him and done ministry with Him and, and ate with Him and, and shared a, a sleeping quarters with Him and, and was around Him and, and saw all the things that He did and taught. This is what I know, John says. And I want you to know it as well. And he begins in verse 1 with this 
statement that is simple enough for anyone to understand, and yet it yields a very profound reality. Look with me in John chapter 1, verse 1. We'll just consider a few verses this morning. John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing we want to consider out of this text is the very person of Jesus, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2 to consider that. We find and encounter a very familiar phrase in the beginning of John's Gospel. In the first three words, in the beginning, it automatically almost connects us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, doesn't it? Anybody that would have grown up hearing the Pentateuch or the Torah and studied in that climate and culture would have connected back to John chapter 1, verse 1. And I think that's John's intent here. Even in verse 3, he's going to reference creation and Jesus' role in creation. So I think he wants us to tie back to creation. In Genesis 1 and in John 1 both, this term beginning is an absolute term. And the language that he uses denotes that. So anybody reading it in its original language would have understood. John is meaning the beginning in absolute uh Terminology, meaning the beginning of the universe, the beginning of time, the beginning of all things. Mark actually uses the very same word to start his gospel as well in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Only that time, Mark is trying to show the absolute beginning of the ministry of Jesus here on earth. John is saying, I want you to see that the person of Jesus goes back as far as the human mind will allow. Back to before beginning. Back to the... the beginning of time and creation and existence of all things. Now we know John is referencing Jesus here. Several studies and other scriptural passages allow us to make that connection, but even in the text we can glean that. He uses this term word to refer to Jesus, but in verse 2 he personifies this word using the pronoun he. Then he uses that he and him, the rest of the text, even down through verses 9 and 13. And then 14, he uses the word again. This time, this word becomes flesh, dwells among us. And he begins to be more specific. Uh, he's, uh, we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. John chapter 1, verse 15. John the Baptist bears witness to this individual, whoever he may be, that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And we can tie that back to other passages John making that claim and statement about Jesus. And then verse 16 and 17, the author, John, actually identifies Jesus as this individual. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we can build all the way back to say, verse 1, John 1, Jesus was in the absolute beginning. Before time existed, before the world was created, before anything was brought into being, Jesus is there. And out of verse 1 alone, we want to consider four things about the person of Jesus. 
that I believe to be incredibly foundational. Number one, it's that Jesus was in the beginning. Number two, it's that Jesus was with God. Number three, it's that Jesus was God. And number four, it's that Jesus was the Word. So first, Jesus was in the beginning. Again, we've been touching on this already. He was in the absolute beginning. Before anything had yet existed, Christ was there. Many struggle with that concept, believe it or not. Many want to claim that Jesus was created at His birth. Many even want to claim that He became divine at His baptism. Church, The early church throughout church history has fought that battle consistently. And particularly in the early parts of church, the church, uh, they fought very hard against this false teaching concerning Christ. There was this uprising called Arianism that believed Jesus wasn't divine until He was baptized and He was a created being at His birth. And the church said, no, that's not true. And John would say, no, that's not true. In the absolute beginning, before anything had been brought about yet, Jesus was there. Which doesn't that say something incredibly significant about Philippians 2? And Paul said he humbled himself by taking on the form of humanity and even going to the cross to die. We're not talking about a man who was just born like everybody else. Though he was born like everybody else. We're not talking about some created human, some created individual. We're talking about the God of the universe. The eternally existing Jesus humbled Himself for us. Later in this very Gospel, John will say in chapter 8, verse 58, he'll record something. Jesus says, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders at the time, and in verse 58 of John 8, he gives one of his seven I Am statements declaring His divinity in this Gospel. He says to the religious leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to throw at him. They knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus is not just claiming divinity there. That's how we mostly take that text and should take that, take that text. He's also claiming the very same thing in John chapter 1, verse 1. He's pre-existent. He's eternal in His existence. He's always been. Always been around. He's not subject to creation. He's not bound by time. He's not limited by the natural elements or natural laws that God instituted. Now, He does submit Himself to such things when He humbles Himself, which shows us the magnitude of how much He loves us. Secondly, we want to consider that Jesus was with God. We also find that in verse 1. and We ought not to presume upon that verse because it is very significant. In fact, the whole glory of the birth of Christ is found in these things that we're considering in verse 1. You notice... John doesn't open with an account of Jesus' birth like, say, the Gospel of Luke does. He starts with the very beginning of time and notes that Jesus was already there and He was with God there. So it's not just that He's eternally existed, but He's fellowshiped with the divine. He hasn't existed separate from God. He's not another deity from God. He hasn't existed elsewhere from God. He's been in communion with God. The word with there, I find to be very important. 
John chapter 17, verse 5 is one of those uh, unique verses throughout the Bible where we get this glimpse into what life was like before creation. You often get that question, what was God doing before the world began? And this is a picture window into seeing what was going on. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying and in verse 5, right before His betrayal and His arrest and His crucifixion, He says this, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. There's something going on in the Trinity there before the world existed. Not only does that text tell us that Christ has always existed, but that He was with the Father and that they were in some fashion sharing glory. The Trinity was glorifying one another. And there was harmony and unity and fellowship and intimacy and and knowledge and closeness. And in that prayer, Jesus says, God, Father, glorify Me like it used to be. Glorify Me in the way that we shared glory before anything ever came into being. Before the world existed. There's this beautiful picture of Jesus glorifying the Father and the Spirit. And the Father and the Spirit glorifying Jesus. There's this beautiful picture of perfect harmony taking place there. Well, Thirdly, from verse 1, we see that Jesus was God. It's the culmination of verse 1. And John is logically building to the next conclusion. He was in the beginning. Therefore, he must have been with God. And if he's in the beginning with God, he must be God, right? Because who else could dwell in the beginning with God? So Jesus is God. Now, some are quick to claim that you know, Jesus never claimed to be God and the people of His time didn't understand Him to be claiming to be God and those sorts of things. And John dismisses that right off the bat. John said, there's there's never a question for me now that Jesus is God. I've come to know it. I've come to realize it. And even in John chapter 5, verse 18, John is very particular and specific in reporting that even the other people knew it. In John chapter 5, verse 18, John says this, this is why the Jews were all the more, seeking all the more to kill Him. What was their motivation? What was their reasoning? He says this is why they want to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, as in the text prior to this in chapter 5, but also He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. John said, make no mistake, the people knew the claims Christ was making. Equality with the Father. And I know the claims that Christ was making. Equality with the Father. And I'm here to tell you, He was in the beginning, He was with God, and He is in fact God Himself. It's a very clear and powerful and quite frankly, shocking statement for His readers. Some people would have picked up this letter from John and they lived in the time of Christ as well and they would have heard of His popularity, this carpenter guy from Nazareth walking these dirt streets and stirring up people and and preaching all the time. And now I read that He was God. He's divine. He is divine. And understanding that central truth from the first few verses of the Gospel of John determines your eternity. 
You've heard it said before, and we will say it again, that if you get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. The truths you learn in verse 1 of John 1 determine where a person will spend eternity. You do not have to have perfect theology to be saved, praise God. But you do have to know Jesus is God. Fourthly, in verse 1, John calls Jesus the Word. He summarizes in verse 2 what he's, all, what he's been saying in verse 1, but this time he again personifies this individual. He was in the beginning with God, which we should follow out the next logical conclusion just as he does in verse 1. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. But the way that he describes Jesus in verse 1 is rather intriguing, isn't it? He uses this term logos, which rightly translates word. Now, in the Bible, when that term is used, it's used in connection with three things. With God's powerful activity in creation, with God's revelation, and with God's deliverance. So, for example, creation, the Bible speaks of creation in this way, saying that God, what? Spoke all things into existence. Not only in Genesis 1 and 2 do we find that reality, but even in the Psalms and other places we find God speaking things into existence. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we actually also find out that God upholds the universe by the Word of His power. So this terminology, the Bible uses to connect to God's power in creation. God's not only creating with His Word, but He's upholding creation with His Word. Second, revelation. God reveals Himself and reveals His expectations in what? Words. Right, you and I have been created by God, designed by God to communicate with words. And so that's how God communicated. For example, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, the prophet Jeremiah in writing his book says this, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and then all the other prophets would often begin their proclamations by saying, thus says the Lord, the word of the Lord has come. God is revealing Himself even in deliverance, the Bible says God delivers and heals by His Word. For example, Psalm chapter 107, verse 20 says He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. That's kind of just pulled out and isolated. We're not talking about who the them is, but we are talking about the fact that we see there the language being used, God sends out His Word, and it's that Word that accomplishes the healing and the deliverance. So in other words, we can say God's Word is His powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and deliverance. So it's fitting for John to use this terminology to describe Jesus because the Lord is the ultimate self-expression of God in creation, revelation, and deliverance, isn't He? Jesus is the creating agent of God, revealing the power and glory of God. He is the revealer of God, bringing the revelation of God, the light of God into the world. He is the deliverer of God. You find this same truth being expressed in Hebrews chapter 1 if you look over there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. 
See, the same mentality of the word being used, not as explicitly as John, but nonetheless, the, less the principles there. Hebrews 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Christ is the very Word of God, the self-expression of God. So what we learn here is tremendous just from verse 1 alone, right? Jesus is eternally existing. Jesus has complete and perfect fellowship with God. Jesus is Himself God. And He is the full revelation of God. Verse 1 is so simple and yet so, so profound. Well, let's speed along real quick because it's that foundation that really begins to enhance our understandings of the Gospel and other things. So that's the person of Jesus. Verse 3, we consider the power of Jesus. Verse 3, John talks about creation. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And now since Jesus is God, we should be able to witness Him as God and see evidence of Him as God. And most clearly the evidence of someone being God would be power and most notably power in creation. That's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. That God has made His power known through creation so everyone's without excuse. Well, we see that even in Christ. And that's what John is making the reference to. And he uses... Well, he, he says the same thing in two ways in verse 3. In a positive form and a negative form. And he does that because the same truth communicates two realities. The truth that Jesus has the power to create needs to be expressed in two ways. Number one, the positive form. All things were made, were made through Him. Now just like the term beginning, John wants to be absolute in verse 3. All things were made through Jesus. Everything you lay your eyes upon has its origination in Christ creating and the power of Jesus bringing it forth. It's not just that though. It's everything you don't see in the heavenly realms and spiritual realms also have their origination in the power of Christ. All things that exist even concepts like time and, and other things have their origination in Jesus. We can take it a step further. and We used this term yesterday with the kids. Jesus created ex nihilo, which is Latin to say out of nothing. Not only does He create and everything have its origination in Him, its existence in Him, but He creates out of nothing, right? We go back to Genesis chapter 1. There's nothing and then God speaks and all of a sudden there is something. There's light and there's dry land and there's animals and there's plant life and there's the sun and the moon and the stars and on and on and on and on. Christ, according to John, is the one who possesses that creative power creating out of nothing. 
I want to turn your attention real quick to Colossians chapter 1. Look there with me because I don't want you to miss it. This very same truth is repeated here in Colossians 1. Verse 16 and verse 17. A lot of the same language is going to be used. In verse 16, Paul says this, For by Him all things were created. And in case you don't understand that, let let Paul be all-inclusive here. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Even the things that have authority over us in this world, Christ has authority over them as Creator. But notice what he says at the end of verse 16. All things were created through Him, but also for Him. So we not only get this uh, understanding of the creative power of Christ, but the responsibility of creation to Christ. All things were created for Jesus to be glorified, to be honored, to be enjoyed, to bring Him pleasure. Your life is not your own life, whether you are a Christian or not. Your life, your very existence, the very existence of the sun, the stars, the grass in the field is meant to bring glory and grandeur to God. It's for God's enjoyment. God's pleasure. God's exaltation. He allows us to enjoy those things. But make no mistake, the world isn't created for you. It's created for Him. Not only does Christ possess creative power, but all things are responsible to Him. And then Paul takes it even a step further in verse 17. He is before all things, preeminent above all things, supreme before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So it's not just creative power, but it's also sustaining power. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says the same thing. By His Word, He upholds the universe. By the Word of His power, He upholds the universe. What kind of power must exist for God to bring something out of nothing and then sustain it? The way you and I think about power can so corrupt our understanding of this, right? We think of like electricity, that's a form of power. The, the transfer station could run out of electricity. Right? Our our, our Lighting here could go out. Power could run out and cease. But not with, not with God. And everything in this world has its power coming from somewhere else, right? It, it's this one big cycle as God has designed it. But everything that we see that uh, shoots forth power or energy has to get its energy somewhere else. But that's not with God. Before there is energy, God has the power to create. And there's not some other source of external power feeding into God so that He can therefore sustain all things. No, He has the power in and of Himself to sustain all things and He never runs out. This is magnitude beyond magnitude, church. And John comes all the way down into chapter 1, verse 3, and says it's all found in Christ. I have a professor, Bruce Ware. He's a systematic theologian and he tried to make a simple picture of the incarnation of Jesus. He says it's like 
buying a new car and then covering it with mud. It looks one way on the outside, but on the inside there's something more to it. The same is true with Jesus. He is portraying Himself one way in the Gospel and without contradicting Himself, there's, there's more to Him. And John is trying to communicate that more to Him. This, this immense power to create and sustain the immense authority that He has over all creation for it to be responsible to Him. And, and then let me just couple that again with Philippians chapter 2. A God with such power and authority and responsibility would look upon puny creatures of the dust who sin against Him. And Philippians 2, humble Himself even to the point of dying for them. What does that say about God? And what kind of love does He have to possess in an unconditional way to say, though I am more powerful than anything ever found in creation, I care enough about these small creatures of the dust to lay my life down for them. You and I do not understand that. Because any time we we gain just an ounce of power. We cling to it like it's our very life. And God says, I will lay it all down that I may die and rise again for them. When we consider what John is saying in John chapter 1 in connection with the Gospel and our salvation church, it, it is it's beyond me. Bear with me please. The negative form of verse 3 real quick. He's saying the same thing, but now with negative language. All things were made through Him. And without Him, there's a negative word. Was not, there's a negative word. Without Him was not anything made that was made. What, what is He saying there? Why the same thing in two different formats? I believe with the negative form of the truth He's communicating in verse 3, He's saying that not only is all creation coming from Him, but a reminder, all creation is dependent upon Him even in the sense that we wouldn't be here if He didn't will it to be so. Not just that we're sustained, but we're only here because He wanted it that way. We're only existing because He desired us to exist. We have as our very cornerstone of existence, Jesus Christ. So in Revelation chapter 4, I'll just read it. You guys don't have to flip over there. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we find... 24 elders worshiping Jesus. And they're casting down their crowns. And this is what they're saying. Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things. And then this, and by Your will they existed and were created. Just a few verses before that we find the the four living creatures flying around and singing praise to God day and night and they're not ceasing and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they're praising this the, the uniqueness of God and the character and nature of God. But then these 24 elders, they're, they're worshiping because of something different. They're worshiping a different aspect. They're worshiping the power of God in creation saying because you are the Creator, you deserve glory and honor and you possess power. That's why you're worthy. But then they also make this statement, and it's, it's a reason for them to worship, by your very will, creation exists. 
These are created beings, by the way, worshiping God, saying, we are only here, God, because You desire it to be so. It's a picture of control and authority over creation. It's a picture of magnitude beyond what you and I are really going to be able to grasp. They're saying, worthy are You because You even had the desire to create us and You created. All of that, again, to come back and say, John is saying all of these functions of creation that we find throughout Scripture, defining God in creation and and revealing God in creation, all of them come down, verse 3, to be applied to Jesus Christ. Our world has one sustainer, one Creator, and it's Jesus Christ Himself. And nothing happens apart from His will. And that should determine how we relate to Him, how we worship Him, how we view His love for us, His promises for us. And it should reveal, again, Philippians 2, the humility that He showed. Christ was never for a second forced to the cross. Nothing ever in His whole life in His betrayal, and His arrest, nothing ever got outside of His control. He never once said, uh-oh. This is, my favorite, this is my daughter's favorite word. He never once says that. If He has the power and sustainability and responsibility and authority over creation, you better believe that every swing of the hammer from the soldier pinning Christ to the cross, Jesus was sustaining Him for it. That leads us to number three. We've considered the person of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Now we consider the very passion of Jesus in verse 4 and 5. I'm going to skip over a bunch here. And we, we see John using terms like life and light and skipping over a long lengthy explanation. They all come down to refer to eternal life and salvation. They're salvific terms. In verse 3 and 4, you connect them to verse 9. John also calls Jesus the true light, which goes back to verse 5, meaning that they're spiritual terms. They're salvific terms. In other words, not only is Jesus eternal, divine, and fellowshipping with God, and the, the full, complete revelation of God, not only does He have power and authority and responsibility and all those things over creation, but He also is the Savior of the world. He is the dispenser of eternal life and salvation and understanding of God. And He loves to do it just like we saw last week in Luke chapter 15, right? He loves to save sinners. Well, how are verse 4 and 5 possible? And that's what we want to talk about. Drop down to verse 14, one of the most famous verses in all the Scripture for the church. Verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pause right there because it's unique. John only refers to Jesus as the Word in verse 1. And then from that point, he refers to Him in normal language, He and Him. And then in verse 14, he reminds us that He's the Word. And he's doing that so that the reader will automatically be connected back to verse 1. 
Because he's not going to use that term again. He hasn't used that term since. It's almost randomly plucked in, but he does it for a precise reason. He's saying, remember the person of verse 1, and now understand he became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a wonderful picture of Christ's sacrifice. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's as close as John's going to get to the birth of Jesus. But it's a loaded statement. He took on humanity. Which means this powerful, magnificent, uh, eternal God and all the things we've talked about, all of a sudden in verse 14, submits Himself to the need to eat, the need to sleep, the need to cut His hair, all these mundane things that make us human beings. He dwelt among us, so He experiences what we experience in this world. Storms that come rolling in and, and complaining from our neighbors and, and hearing the dog bark at 2 a.m. in the morning. All these things that we endure living in this world, Christ subjects Himself to. Why? So that He can live as a man to be the sacrifice for man. To atone for man's sin. Do you see the enhancement of the Gospel here? There's this personal statement in verse 14. This Word and all of His glory became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. That's, that's John saying, let me remind you reader, I was with Jesus. I have seen His glory and it is glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. You know at the cross is where grace and truth meet and are displayed. It's where mercy and justice collide together where the truth of God's standard is upheld and not negated. That unless you are righteous, you don't get into heaven. But also it's where grace meets and God is able to dispense mercy because Christ became righteous for us. So that God could forgive. So that as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Church, what does this say about our God's love for the, the redeemed? His desire to save sinners. The urgency and priority of evangelizing a lost world around us. What does these truths say when we consider the person of who Jesus is with the power of Jesus and His desire to redeem us and the fact that He has redeemed us, that He's gone to the cross for us, which is what verse 14 is alluding to, that He has gone to the cross for us and resurrected for us, taking on our wickedness that we might be redeemed. What does this say about us if we don't worship Him? What does this say about us if we're not thrilled with Him? What does this say about us if we lack passion concerning God and the things of God? What does this say about us if, if we don't devote our lives to Him and pursue obedience and struggle against sin and desire for Him to be glorified in our lives? This says if, if we ignore all these things and know these realities, it means we don't know Christ as Savior. That's what it says. Because to know Jesus in an intimate way as He is to be revealed in the Scriptures means you can't just half-heartedly walk with Him, right? You can't just half-heartedly worship Him. You can't just half-heartedly devote yourself to Him. We're talking the God who's always been, 
who is Creator of all things, redeeming our souls, He alone is worthy of our lives to be laid down as living sacrifices for Him. When Christ demands everything, church, He deserves everything. In John chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 14, shows us just how much this God of ours loves us. I would ask you these questions in closing. Do you know Jesus in this way? It's a simple question. And yet it can be very piercing. We are so quick and so guilty of fabricating our own ideas of God. Do you know Jesus according to the Bible? Because the Bible paints Him in a more glorious picture than you and I could ever fathom. Have you honored Jesus as He is and deserves to be? Have you given your life to Jesus? Are you proclaiming this kind of Jesus? Do these truths increase your adoration, devotion, submission, and praise? Because they should. They should. We have a wonderful God who loves us beyond what we can imagine and fathom. And John is saying it's displayed in Jesus. He's the Word. Remember the full expression of God? You want to see the heart of God in salvation? Consider His humility in coming to die for our sins. Lord, I, I thank You for these truths expressed in John 1. We don't have to wonder who You are. We can claim with Peter, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of the living God. And while Peter may not and most likely didn't understand all of what that meant, we know what it means to call you Messiah. It means all these things revealed in John 1, verse 1. And God, we can look at these words and these verses in a technical sense and take them in an intellectual way, but really they're given so that our hearts would be transformed by them. That we would be changed. That maybe we would be exposed as an unbeliever that we need to come to, to faith in You. Or maybe we need to repent of how casually we've treated You and how often we've neglected You. Maybe we need to glean from these verses confidence that You love us and when You say You've forgiven us, You have forgiven us. Whatever it may be, minister these words to our hearts in a way that only You can. In Jesus' name, Amen.